Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike Wong, co-host also Mike on the line. And Mike, we've done 686 full episodes prior to this one of reviews <laughs> and news and interviews and punditry. Mm-hmm. And I, I have kind of prided ourselves on not having any lead story that was just hearsay and Hollywood gossip and drama. And it was a hell of a run. It was a long, <laughs> prestigious run before... We have. We are now going to muckrake. Is that the right term? Muckrake the rest. We're going to worry, episode. darling. We're going to worry. That's for sure, yeah. fella. Uh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is completely ridiculous. We're watching slow mo gifs on Twitter for an hour. For I, I, I watched it for an hour. Did you not watch it for an hour? Swell got me first, worked up. Yeah, yeah. The first like ten to fifteen watches of it, I was sure that he was spitting. Yeah, because the reactions. Chris, exactly. Chris Pine's reaction. You cannot react that quickly without there being something to react to. <clears throat> However, I think we have an explanation yes. that we're going to posit. And despite whatever the publicists may say, we're not in league with all these publicists. <laughs> it's not a quid pro quo relationship there, folks. Mike and yeah. I are in the Siberia of Hollywood here East in Connecticut. Yep. Connecticut. East, East Hollywood. <laughs> uh, so we don't care what we have. What we're going we're gonna to say what we're going to say, damn it. And we, we have a very definitive, uh, definitive opinion on what happened. Yeah, so that's where we'll start. You got a lot in this Oscar race checkpoint, a lot of news, a lot of award news, and we're going to recap a lot of the reactions from Venice and Telluride, but we have to start with Don't Worry Darling, which finally had its beleaguered and exacerbated, exasperated, I guess I should say, uh, premiere at Venice, Michael. Yeah, as of last episode, we covered the wild LaBeouf Pew rumors Mm. and reporting. We knew that Pew was actively promoting other projects instead of Don't Worry Darling, and we had heard that Pew was only going to do press for Don't Worry Darling in Venice, and then, like, after we dropped our episode, uh, we heard that she was going to be too busy with Dune Part 2, quote-unquote, air quotes in the air, and she was not going to do the press conference, but she would walk the red carpet. And yeah, Olivia Wilde does the press conference and she avoids all questions about Florence Pugh and Shia LaBeouf and just kind of talks about the Internet and, you know, being the mm-hmm. Internet. And then how she's, you know, saying the right things about Florence Pugh, that she's honored to have her as her lead, etc. And then we have Chris Pine not being an <laughs> active listener. So here's the explanation for the spit take. Chris Pine was just incredibly high. I am convinced that entire day. High as a kite. (laughs) I mean, and God bless him for it. I don't know how else you're supposed to handle that type of situation than, like, you might as well go into business for yourself and just get incredibly stoned. And I believe he took advantage of that and did that very thing. Edibles, something. (laughs) The dude was feeling no pain. Good for him, I guess. I don't know. You and I don't really do those things, yeah. but he, uh, if 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 
if you are to partake, maybe mm-hmm. just he's got the good shit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. As, as the kids say. Hollywood what do the kids grade say? stuff. I yeah. don't know. I am such a Melvin. I am such a Quaker. <laughs> I don't myself. But look at Florence Pugh arrives in Venice and purple. She's got that uh, rosé in, in the glass. She's strutting. She looks happy. Yeah, she walks she... the red carpet like she's just won the Hunger Games. Knew exactly what she was doing this entire time. She was she looked great. She looked happy. She looked like she wanted to be there. Whether or not she actually did, I guess we'll find out when Ryan Murphy finally does the miniseries. But uh, this was Florence Pugh. That black dress she changed into for the red carpet. I mean, that was callbacks to Princess Diana. Yeah, it was was awesome. And uh, a lot of leg and a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And the cast seemed jovial enough to be around one another. However, whenever a picture was taken, it was like a 1900 old west photograph and none of them would <laughs> smile except for olivia wilde and it's she her smile was a pained smile yeah uh yeah. but look i mean chris pine pretends to be a part of the paparazzi on this red carpet michael he might have actually thought he was the paparazzi for uh, what the, his mental state was at that point but yeah I, I think he has a disposable camera or it could have just been a box it could have just been a box of some kind. It, could have, it was a juice box is it was what it was. It was a juice box. But he's taking fake pictures of his Outlaw King co-star and Florence Pugh, who lights up for him and, and just mugs for his camera and then mm-hmm. hugs and kisses him on both cheeks. Uh, from there, we have more Chris Pine memes coming out, poking fun at how bad Harry Styles is at answering promotional questions. The movie felt like a movie. I, I love this I movie like, so what you, much. What do you want Chris Pine to do with that stuff? Like, I, yeah, the guy, like, yeah, sit mm-hmm. there, man. I don't know. The movie felt like a movie. Great job. Next question. Next question, exactly. And it just his next mus- neck muscles pulse. <laughs> <laughs> but the cast m- members, they basically, they hang out, right, at, at outside the theater. They walk up together, then they're hanging out in the hallway, and then the cast members come in and they each sit down to an introduction at a film festival. And this Mm -hmm. happens either on stage or in their seats at some festivals. And they've just spent all this time together, so they're not going to like embrace and hang out with each other at that point. They've just been hanging out with each other. Anyway, the cast members are each introduced to the theater audience, and we have this bizarre situation where Chris Pine stops clapping when Harry Styles is introduced and he turns his face towards Pine right at the moment that Pine, like, freezes Mm -hmm. and stops. And then Harry sits down, and Harry has a guilty look on his face for some reason. (laughs) Well, he is British. (laughs) He does have a British guilty look on his face. And we see Chris Pine... Pick up his glasses from Mm -hmm. his crotch, laugh at himself or somebody else, and the internet basically wondered if he spit on him for for a day. Everyone was convinced that Harry Styles spat at Chris Pine on his leg, on his shoes, and this would be such a non-story if two things didn't happen. One, Harry's lips do definitely, like, purse or curl, (laughs) which was bizarre. I saw purse! (laughs) (laughs) And two, Chris Pine's head, 
I mean, he freezes at the exact moment, and then his head follows the trajectory that Spit would be going in, and he looks down at his feet and stops clapping all in one, and the reaction is so simultaneous. It, 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 I can totally understand. Like I said, I thought there must have been Spit based on Chris Pine's reaction. Now, when you slow down the video, yeah. there is no visible None. loogie of any kind. Now, None. this could be a skinny malnourished actors <laughs> puny terrible spit like it could have just like it mm-hmm. like the like a greek grandmother blessing the floor. Could, yeah, and it could have been a mistake spit too like he just you know and, and chris pine that's why he didn't make a big deal about it but he was still oh my god this guy just happened to spittle on me yeah by accident or on we don't know like yeah. he could have but we know who are in league with whom correct and <laughs> right. if chris pine was <laughs> having fun with another certain somebody on the red carpet. Well, again, this is what we're thinking. Now, I still do not believe at this moment when we're all scouring the internet that he spit on the man because if you get spit on, number one, you probably see the spit flying in a slow motion video. Right. You and I grew up when Roberto Alomar was playing baseball. Mm-hmm. Now, baseball players are much better spitters than probably movie <laughs> actors. However, <laughs> I would agree. However, the one thing somebody always does when they get spit on that I've noticed in my life, that I've done in my life, if my friend or whatever, if a close-talking friend of mine, and sometimes I'm that close-talking friend, and sometimes if I'm conducting a class of some sort and I accidentally spit on a kid in the front row, the kid will wipe his face, right? right? It happens every time, and I only know, because I'm a raving maniac in the front of the room, (laughs) I only know that I've done this if the kid does that. So I think Chris Pine, even with the spotlight, it would have just been a human reaction to wipe his face. Mm. Even if he spat on his shoes? I Well, it looked like he was leaning over his head, right? I mean, you said maybe he spat on his... I, I, the only reason I said shoe or leg is because of the trajectory of Chris Pine's face. I agree. If it was anything on his face, the first thing would have been Chris Pine reaching for his face. But his head goes right down. Yeah, Like, he looks down. And, I mean, I think the answer to that is, again, Chris Pine was very high. And as soon as Harry Styles was announced, he's clapping with his glasses yes. in his hands. Yes. And he puts his sunglasses down between his lap. And then he be- continues clapping for Harry Styles. And then he says, oh, shit, where are my sunglasses? Yeah, no. <laughs> he looks down. He's like, oh, there they are in his lap where he just put them. Because, again, the man spent all day being high as a kite. <laughs> so I wanted the interview from Variety of Chris Pine after this incident. And it mm-hmm. didn't happen. And I, I love Variety for all their coverage and et cetera. And all the all the trades, by the way, this fed us this weekend. Yes. However, you know, I mean, Chris Pine would have been like, "Yeah, man, I do. <laughs> it was so crazy. <laughs> I had these glasses." <laughs> Really brought the outfit together, did it not? <laughs> and then I saw Harry, and I was clapping, man. And then, where are my glasses? <laughs> this is this entire controversy is so dumb. It's so, I love it. I absolutely love it. It is so dumb. (laughs) We finally. I mean, all of it. I mean, like the the Florence v. Olivia stuff, which we commented on, which is like laced with misogyny and sex. It's all so stupid. Well, this is, this is the stupid ending that the serious controversy does not deserve. However, it's funny that the the men of the situation are bringing this part. Yes. (laughs) Of the controversy into it now, because now. Like, what the hell? It's a joke. I mean, and think of, you know, for everyone who says that, like, we're making these jokes about Harry and 
and Chris Pine. Could you imagine if it looked like Olivia spat at Florence or vice versa? Like, the vitriol and venom and outrage yeah. there would be. It, it, it's just totally different. So that's why, again, I say, like, I think this is just a horrible controversy from start to finish. But nonetheless, okay, the movie premieres. We have 18,000 different controversies leading up to it. We get the movie. We get a standing ovation at Venice. The Hollywood Reporter said seven minutes. Variety said four minutes. It's not the first time this Venice festival they've disagreed. I'm still waiting for Clayton Davis and Scott Weinberg to, to fight in order to settle this in the ring. But whatever. We have a standing ovation. It looks like Florence Pugh rushes out or at least leaves briskly once the movie is over. And that's maybe why the, the, the ovation was cut short. And we have Harry Styles kissing Nick Kroll. Hilarious. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Nick Kroll is the only person I legitimately feel bad for in all this. Like, there should be way more focus on how one of the guys from the old VH1 Best Week Ever show Mm -hmm. is now a legitimate Hollywood movie star hobnobbing alongside Florence Pugh and Captain Kirk at the Venice Film Festival. (laughs) He put up a TikTok yesterday that was hysterical, I think. It was him and Sidney Chandler driving to the red carpet, surrounded by all the paparazzi and all the fans and stuff, and he was like, nope. These aren't the people you're looking for in this car. It's just Nick and Sid. (laughs) We're not Olivia. We're not Florence. Sorry. The looks of quiet disappointment. It was hilarious. Like, Nick Kroll deserves everything good the world has to offer. Yeah, and he was a star of the room, and he gave Florence Pugh like a final curtain call during the, the standing ovation that, again, I don't know how they screw up three and four, uh, four and seven minutes. That's why they need us, Mike. They need us there because we'll get this the official answer. I mean, they're they're do, they started to get exact. Like mm-hmm. they had 150 seconds. I don't know mm-hmm. why they said it like that. For <laughs> it's like Netflix describing their right exactly Netflix's viewership. <laughs> 77 billion seconds of I came by was watched this weekend. Congratulations, Sandra Bullock. Yeah. (laughs) But we have Earl of Grantham is the new star of Netflix. No, I think think the fact that we're four-ish, seven-ish minutes, it's absurd. Guys, you got to get it together. Yeah, that's that's bad. That's a bad discrepancy. Don't pay or pay some slavish interns like us unpaid we, we we'll work for very cheap to right. be, like to like and and listen i will wipe own... spittle <laughs> off of faces we'll be spitting at each other quite frankly <laughs> the only reason we harp on this is because as we always say and everybody knows by now mm-hmm. the standing ovation counter is the most important part of it's anything the having only to do with film. thing that matters yes. over the weekend and <laughs> there cannot be enough tweets about right. it exactly we need this. <laughs> oh, this is all so dumb! <laughs> Michael, look, don't worry, darling, has this ridiculous premiere. However, the critics, in terms of the movie, not happy with it. Not that great, it seems. And, and it kind of puts a, the death knell in the idea that a standing ovation is on merit as opposed to just people surrounded by Hollywood A-listers, I think, because, look, four-minute, seven-minute standing ovation, whatever, you can say the same about Bardo, which was that 150-second standing ovation, but Don't Worry Darling carries a 44% on 36 initial reviews on Rotten Tomato. It's got a 49 Metascore. It's been... 
I've seen some positive reviews on film Twitter. I've seen yeah. mostly negative. Bardo is the same thing. I've seen a few positive reviews, mostly negative, but they still get standing ovation. Like the standing ov- the reason we make so much fun and everybody does about the standing ovation counter is because it's obligatory. It's, it, it's yeah. this, right, it, and it's this absurd. Like you're clapping regardless of what the movie shows you. Apparently, yes. Absolutely. They're lemmings in the moment. They can't help mm-hmm. it. They're, they're in the presence of stars. And again, is, I've been I mean, there. I get it. Like you said, I, right. It's obligatory. We, we do the same thing. Uh, I've it's done not the like same the thing. stars and the people like you're clapping for the entire movie too. Everyone did bust their ass making this feature true, film. True. So they deserve some kind of adulation. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, Sean Fennessy says. I mean, a lot of these movies are Oscar contender. It's hard to body slam the entire movie. You're not right. You're going to have caveats of things you liked. And, and I do think that there's some of that. Like Eric Anderson of Awards Watch was saying there's a lot of things he likes about Don't Worry Darling, and he hopes that it, you know, it gets seen out there. But most of these reviews are not, you know, all too positive, laden with half-baked, risk-free ideas that do little to shock or stir. That's Steph Green from BBC.com. Another one was high on snazzy, mid-century style, but considerably less bothered by the mechanics of cohesive storytelling. Uh, that's from Leia Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly. It's always a favorite of mine too. Watching how these the journalists and the the critics use their English degrees and like trying to say that this movie wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. Less bothered <laughs> by the mechanics of cohesion. <laughs> the well, story they can't was just bad. say meh. They right. can't just write like you and me should just have a review that just says meh. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Helen O'Hara of Empire, Pewis Suburb, while Wilde confidently steps up to a bigger subject and budget to deliver a slick, beautiful film. It doesn't quite stick the landing, but its flight to that point is fascinating. So, I mean, again, not all outrightly negative, nor should it be. So we've seen a few instances in the past of initial bad reviews becoming something eventually Oscars level, Michael. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment here before you body slam me, but... Jojo Rabbit is probably the most obvious example, even though that had an immediate redemption at TIFF. Right, that's after, what I was going to say. Yeah, with it wasn't, wasn't, and it wasn't this, I mean, 49 Metacritic score. Elvis was kind of slammed at Cannes sure. for a hot minute there, mm-hmm. at least that initial wave before it was, and it definitely was beloved in the room, and I want to report that my Elvis rewatch, still damn good. I really I enjoyed it. I can't believe you got to it. I, I, did, I, I, I still haven't hit play on it yet. I had food poisoning over the weekend. It was a it's nightmare, true. and it's, it's the only thing that sustained me. I, I watched, I watched some Elvis. I did some pukey and poopy. I watched some Elvis. <laughs> I just purged in the bathroom. I watched some Elvis. I just saved my life. I it's just I, I dehydrated. It was three in the morning. I really had a hard time this weekend, but that's a good movie. Damn it, <laughs> save me. That and the Rings of Power. You were as delirious Screw as you. Chris Pine is. All right. That's right. That's right. But look at <laughs> can don't worry, darling. Come back from all of this and and become Oscars worthy. Clayton Davis and many other many other pundits don't think so. The headline of his article at Variety said. Despite Florence Pugh's fearless turn, Don't Worry Darling isn't a major Oscars contender. I, not surprising, right? I mean, this is kind of what we and I said last episode of the episode, the ORC before. I mean, we, I feel like we saw the awards chances of this movie get systematically, like, pulled apart in real time over the past two weeks with all these controversies and all the ancillary controversies and ancillary players coming in. And it's just, it's just a bad look. And sometimes a property just becomes too toxic. I think like a good rule of thumb going forward, I've already kind of hinted at this, but if you're clamoring for Ryan Murphy to get the rights to produce the miniseries of it, (laughs) the Oscars chances of that property 
probably have already expired. So this film and this backstory is strange because it, it, it goes through highs and lows. It was an auction property that sold for a high price. Yes. WB was featuring it seemingly here in, in the fall. It was getting this big rollout at Venice. And even in the midst of the controversy, I mean, we still had the Olivia Wilde, what was it, Vanity Fair or Vogue cover story. You know, Absolutely. I mean, she was still doing the full court press for the Oscars campaign. And, and I do want to push back for a minute because I think you're more right than not. Obviously, when there's a production story from hell, when there's a disastrous film marketing campaign, however, and whatever the reasons for that, you do have exceptions to like this bad press rule from Titanic to Mad Max Fury Road in terms of the bad productions. Or Fair. we've seen controversies at, of all different serious levels, like the Green Books, All the Money in the Worlds, yep. West Side Stories. Those have become Oscar contenders, Oscar nominees, Oscar winners at the, at the highest of levels. And then we've seen other like COVID-related controversies from Wakanda Forever to Mission Impossible's Dead Reckoning yes. leading into some movies of the next few years, at least at the blockbuster level, where you're wondering if, you know, a lot of discord could, you know, doom them at the end of the day. But look, I mean, you we've had the godfathers of the past. We've had old Hollywood and we've, we've got a lot of tweets this weekend to remind us of the terms of endearment, actor feuds, and the <laughs> and the Betty and Jones stuff that was pretty, you know, commonplace throughout Hollywood history that didn't affect Oscar situations. Now, mm-hmm. does the new social media age put all of this under microscopes to the point where we're freeze framing a guy during an interview, not being the most active of <laughs> listeners, like I said. And then therefore that is, is a gag. Richard Newby said he was astral projecting in real time. THR picked up on <laughs> Richard Newby's got the best Twitter. Yeah, he's <laughs> great. He really one. is. Um, um, so yeah. the only thing I'll say in rebuttal to your rebuttal of the rebuttal, mm-hmm. <laughs> like with the Mad Maxes and with the green books, we didn't see these controversies as they were happening prior to the movie. Right. Like, they came out... They, Mad Max, I don't know how they kept that feud so quiet between the two leads there, but it was relatively quiet until after the Oscars were won. The Green Book had this controversy leading up to Oscar Sunday, but it was after the movie had already premiered, and it was when the family came out against uh, what was shown in the movie. Having something, you know, having the production, and maybe it is the age of social media, even though those, those are two relatively recent examples... But having something that's so in the headlines leading up to a film festival debut, not even the you know, not great. national debut. Yeah, it's I, I can't imagine people. I mean, you have to have like Citizen Kane 2 to basically, I think, survive that at this point. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Uh, I don't disagree in this instance. And look, it was a fun festival week and especially weekend to track because of these highs and lows. And there's going to be some variance in terms of these reviews overall. I thought th- there were less parades this year for, for one. And it's going to be fun kind of, the, you know, keep going ups and downs in this episode. But let's go up for a couple movies now. And one movie that was universally beloved, Michael, was Women Talking mm. from United Artists, directed by Sarah Polly. Uh, clocks in at uh, 104 minutes. This is a 12 Angry Men style film, I think, stuck in that room for much of it. Stars Rooney Marr, Claire Foy, Francis McDormand, Jesse Buckley, and Ben Wishaw. We talked about the premise. In 2010, the women of an isolated religious community grapple with reconciling their reality with their faith, based on the novel by Miriam Toes. I didn't realize it was a modern-day uh setting right 2010 there uh trio well, of reviews 
For, Quake, uh, for, they're, they're what? They're Mennonites. Yeah, I thought it was, I still, for some reason, I thought it was like a 1700s thing, but all right, going to be an interesting twist there. True reviews, the first coming from Thomas Laffley of The Rap. She writes, Polly strikes a hypnotizing rhythm amongst the women who attack despair with cheeky humor and uncertainty with astute deliberation. Yeah, the next is from Sherry Linden at THR. Quote, at the core of Polly's smart, compassionate film is the belief that in movies and in life, Words can be action, and for the people who have denied, who have been denied a voice, they can be revolutionary. And we have finally from Leah Greenblatt again of Entertainment Weekly. There's a deep vein of humor and humanity that Polly and her actors mine from the text, and something quietly mesmerizing in their world building. A lot of positivity for this movie. Yeah, and I really appreciate the Twitter of Scott Feinberg, who's constantly just tweeting out stuff like to all the youngsters out there guys every movie's not going to be nominated for an oscar and <laughs> come on people this is a little too positive it's a little too positive like it's really funny but yeah i tell you for him and rebecca keegan to lead their article at uh in terms of the recap on telluride at the hollywood reporter basically citing uh, and Keegan wrote this, quote, veritable coven of great actresses at this year's Telluride, including a huge and memorable memorable ensemble of women talking, basically highlighting women talking atop that article uh, of Oscar contenders and that, and that Telluride recap. You know, that says a lot. It seemed that the ensemble got high praise. It seemed that the director got a lot of high praise. I was curious as to what actress might leave, like, stick their head out above all but our buddy ryan mcquaid wanted to highlight the screenplay as well from awards watch he was all over rotten tomatoes with his statement that women talking is the best screenplay of the year yeah so that's cool to see i think uh to make a film work in in a in a chamber piece you you really got to write the hell out of it so hopefully it's a great book and and she adapted it uh really well so that's an early adapted screenplay contender and, and to to your point eric Cohn of indiewire wrote that definitely going to be something we're going to have to track here but these actresses may be competing with themselves which mm. is you know high praise on the one hand but for us oscar pundits like oh no what's going to happen now <laughs> who's right. who's the lead like you said and if they're all supporting who gets nominated do they all get cannibalized you know, Timothy Chalamet, is he really going to eat a person in that film? What are we talking about? We're still women talking. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 100% on 10 reviews. 90 Metascore hits theaters December 2nd. I don't, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to see women talking in New York. I still may try, but uh, I can't wait to see it. Just looking at the tea leaves, it's if there is no, you know, hard and fast, definite lead actress positioned from that movie. It's it, it's going to have to land screenplay. It's going to have to land director if it wants its best picture chances. But again, we're very, very early on in the year, uh, and I, I can't wait to see it. I'm, I'm excited by all the positivity. We'll see if it leads to Oscars momentum when the time comes in December when we get our hands on it. The Whale was also something that got rave reviews, at least for one specific aspect of the movie, from Darren Aronofsky, A24, and writer Samuel D. Hunter, Sadie Sink, Samantha Morton, Hong Chow, and Brandon Frey Frazier was like mm-hmm. the guy this uh this venice yeah he was the king of, he was uh, that dude of venice uh if, if not timothy chalamet but i mean him tearing up during that six minute standing ovation how could you not feel for him he crouches down he sobs for a minute there i mean it just seems like a humongous weight was lifted uh, i can't even make a joke there but no uh, but it's, i mean <laughs> it's funny because but it's also true it, it looked like that look in all seriousness this guy has been through the ringer he's yeah. been blacklisted 
He was assaulted and he was blacklisted for years. And he's making this comeback. He's starring in his first film for a, in a long time. We have Darren Aronofsky uh, purposefully posturing uh, Frazier here to relaunch his career because that's what he wanted to do with this film. And, and Frazier crushed it, and the and the audience loved him for it. The, the fact that he got that moment is is meaningful in an Oscar sense. Let's be honest, sure, because that's what narratives are made of. But it's also it's meaningful for for people like us who've been following this industry forever, obsessed with it forever. And he's just one of these feel good stories. And especially because we grew up with him in the Georges of the yeah. Jungle and the Mummies, that you know that that was like fair for us as teenagers. That was like as much as I could handle the Mummy, like in terms of the horror genre for those years. Kind of, yeah, okay. You know, the late nineties. That's about a, what I could do. And then I, you know, was corrupted in my high school years and beyond. Unlike you, who you're a younger brother, you were Just you were made comfortably evil into all the blood right. and guts of the world. Yeah, much earlier than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so was it how did you feel when you saw that CGI of the Scorpion King reveal and the mummy I think it was two with the rockings like heavily CGI'd and looked ridiculous did that do anything for you no that didn't that didn't scare me any mm-hmm. at all but the Scorpion King was a little later wasn't it yeah but he was like revealed in like the end of one of the mummies I remember vividly because the CGI looked so jarringly bad Daniel Kaluuya's father from Nope worked on Scorpion he did. King it's true did you know this? Yeah, OJ's dad. He did. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about a few <laughs> poll quotes. And again, I mean, film Twitter and you know the critic community was just overwhelmed with just love for Brendan Fraser, Mike. Yeah, Brendan Fraser tackles this role with such grace and compassion for the character, and by extension, the real people out there who see themselves in him. This is from Lex Briscusco of Film School Rejects. It's a great name. Without Brendan Fraser's innate charm and ability to project gentle sadness through the slightest flicker of his huge blue eyes, the whale wouldn't have that much else going for it. That's from Layla Latif, IndieWire. I saw a lot of... Yeah, Brendan Fraser's phenomenal. This movie is kind of lacking. It's not not wonderful overall. I did see a fair amount of that. I think Layla kind of clues you into that feeling. So there is some of that out there, enough to keep an eye on. But I have a question that's been eating me up since I saw this. Like, yeah. I, I watched a little bit of The Presser, and Darren Aronofsky said that before the premiere... He had been working on this movie and trying to get it made for a decade, but he could never pull the trigger because he never met anyone who could play the lead role. And Hmm. he saw Frasier in a Brazilian film, which, based on my research, I think has to have been Journey to the End of the Night from 2006. We're going to have plenty of time, I think, to talk about Frasier's career and where he's come from and where he's been and how amazing he is in this and the review for this as the year goes on, because this seems like he's in the, the catbird seat right now for lead actor, at least. So we're going to end up reviewing The Whale. But here's my question. What is Darren Aronofsky doing in his day-to-day life in, like, circa 2019 that he finds himself watching Journey to the End of the Night, which is a 5.7 rated movie on IMDb, a 43% audience rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes, such a movie... I don't even know where it would be playing back then because it's currently not on any streamer and we have a hell of a lot more streaming services that need any kind of content here in 2022 than we did back in like 2018 or 19. Like, was this part of his delusion and like his downward spiral that, that got him writing Mother? Is this why how we got Mother this period of his time? I think a certain president might have gotten elected <laughs> to, to happen. 
but no, I mean, did you try to buy Journey to the End of the Night on Blu-ray over the weekend? Mike? You can't even rent it on Amazon or VOD. <laughs> like, it's not available. Because I know you were buying stuff over the weekend, but uh, I think he's scouting. He's he's a guy who likes to reintroduce these actors. Mickey Rourke was a big deal for him, you know, with the wrestler there, and uh, he's a savvy Oscar-tour. Uh, Mr. Uh, Aronofsky, I guess, in, 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 the, in one way. But no, he, he deliberately said he wanted to reintroduce an actor for this role, uh, which is something you say in hindsight very beautifully. No, I think he <laughs> he wanted to do this, and he's, he was scouting Brendan Fraser. I don't know if, like, he's... I don't know if there's other directors out there looking at Cuba Gooding Jr. and I know he had troubles or, or whatever. I mean, just pick your actor in obscurity now. Yeah. And... Maybe that happens a lot. Maybe that happens a lot where people are like, hey, it's about time that person comes back. They were awesome in Phantoms back in the day, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Tarantino's done this, obviously, with John Travolta. Uh, mm-hmm. You've cited a couple times Aronofsky's done this. It is it is always heartwarming, and uh, you couldn't ask for a better example of Brendan Fraser, who by all accounts that I've seen so far is just like a really charming lovable dude so good for him it makes me feel good though because like why do you watch peter strickland films on a thursday night why do what you know why would i die for a seashell with shoes on and you know why why do i you know click on daniel day lewis oscar speeches on a wednesday morning Mm -hmm. or why do you tweet about george c scott on a sunday afternoon i mean aronofsky's obsessed with this stuff like we are and yeah it's all because of uh, it's all because that he, he wants to to make the next great movie with the next great story, and as you were saying before, it's because Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer will, were terrible house guests, <laughs> and Jennifer Lawrence gave her heart for that home, and Javier Bardem did not understand her. Amen. She still the best performance of that year. I, I will <laughs> die on that hill. She was robbed. Uh, one more negative review, which again, you know, we're kind of going back and forth. Uh, comes from Brian Formo, Formo, friend of the show from yeah. Collider there. It is inorganic, gimmicky, manipulative, and its lessons are simplistic. As a character, Charlie remains mostly a body. He has kindness to him, but this role is mostly to react to the wants and needs of others. Wow, and that's a guy we trust, Michael. So the whale was something I was worried about. There's still an early positive rating, 84% on 25 reviews, 69 Metascore, so we'll see how this movie fares as it travels the film festivals down the line. The, there's buzz, there's hype for the performance. Will it just be a performance piece? Or And, and we've always said you kind of need something else, mm-hmm. right, for, it's for tough. him to have a it's chance to, to win. It's tough to be the solo, yeah. It's tough yeah. for a performance to be the solo representative of the movie. Based on what you've seen so far, Mike, or what you saw on the reactions and all this on Twitter over the weekend, who do you have in the, the pole position for lead actor? Is it Butler or is it Brendan Fraser? Well, of, of what we've seen thus far. I mean, on, has, based, on the, based on the reactions, like who do you think it, the punditry has, I should say, in the lead? Well, I think both guys get knocked off, to be honest with you. Okay. And I, that's why I want to caution you. As much as this is a lovely story where hopefully he gets nominated, you could totally see this movie just kind of being a little secure, obscure. You could kind of see this movie getting overlooked. Maybe it, that doesn't quite happen yet. Well, so I, we I don't, five is, months, it's a long right, time. Right, right, and it is a long time. But this is also, I mean, thinking back to last year, like usually when you're in the, oh my God, this has to be nominated spot, if you're in the lead and heavily in the lead in one of the categories after Venice, recent history suggests you're at least 
are close, if not, you know, right up against nomination. I mean, like, I know last year we said, like, oh, maybe it's going to be Belfast or Power of the Dog for Best Picture. They still ended up nominated. Like, Kristen Stewart's a slam dunk to win lead actress. Well, no, she didn't even come close, it seems, but she still did end up nominated at the end of the day. So it, yeah. there is that going for it, which is why I try to hone in right now on who the punditry thinks is number one. Yeah, I mean, look, I think coming out of the weekend, Colin Farrell did very well. We'll get mm-hmm. to him in a moment. Uh, the the crossovers are, you know, from the first half of the year are Tom Cruise and Austin Butler in terms of realist, you know, having a realistic chance. I, I don't know yet. We'll, we'll have to keep going. I don't have my list in front of me in terms of my projections. But uh, we had a ton of big names, and that's why this this category was so intriguing up till now. But I think some of them are off the board now with, like, Leo and maybe Joaquin Phoenix not being involved mm-hmm. with uh, the Disappointment Boulevard and, Le- you know, the Killers of the Flower Moon getting bumped. And obviously Will Smith is not coming back for some reason, I forget. And, <laughs> you know, so some of these movies, it's a lot of those huge names, the huge star power, maybe moving off a little bit. So maybe the category is opening up for a Brendan Fraser to just take the stranglehold now and then... Yeah, you're right. He won't go anywhere uh, from there. But look, fest- the festivals giveth and they taketh away. And Bardo, false chronicle of a handful of truths, had a wa- rough week, Michael. Yeah, it did. This is the uh, the new one from Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu and Netflix. It'll hit theaters on November 18th before hitting Netflix about a month later on the 16th of December. Uh, Bardo struggled. This is the semi-autobiographical movie of Inaritu's life and... Uh, it was not received well, by and large. Yeah, quote, the movie is full of good things, but it's three hours long and mostly full of itself. That's Owen Gleiberman of Variety. My man! <laughs> you and the odd couple. Really just the misery twin. The misery trio, what do we say? No, it's the odd couple. It's three of us, and we don't. We don't. you don't deserve an explanation. <sighs> quote, it's hard to shake off the cloying sense of self-indulgence and self-pity. That's Raphael Abraham of the Financial Times. Yeah, we have uh, Bardo meanders a lot, but the more you just go with the flow, the better it all works for you. Fight this one, and it will fight back. At three hours long, it's not an easy watch, but it can be a rewarding one. That's from Joey Maggotson from Awards Radar. So, in terms of awards punditry, though, we had Clayton Davis being pretty definitive, uh, saying it would it would be hard to imagine Bardo having the chops to even represent Mexico for the international feature category, let alone make the short list. So... Unfortunately, Bardo might have, you know, hit a wall this weekend. 54% on 24 Rotten Tomato reviews, only a 54 Metascore to match that. Does not seem like this is going very far. There's always surprises, though, when it comes to that international feature category based on what the countries actually pick, isn't there? I mean, didn't Oh, see, absolutely. I mean, what happened? Broker just, like, got overlooked this past week? Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I have the same take for Bardo as I do for, like, all passion projects. And that's, I don't understand what people were expecting. Like, yes, I know it's in a Ritu, but the the runtime alone probably was a hint. And most of the passion projects, like, yeah, they're overwritten and overlong because they're usually films that the auteur has had in their mind for how who knows how long, how many decades. And they've been tinkering with it and they've been fantasizing scenes about it for however long. And they finally have an opportunity to see it through to fruition. They're going to want to include as much as it possibly can. And the source material is probably going to mean more to the auteur than it will to anyone who watches the film anyway, I would think, for the most part. So, I mean, 
I know you're going to talk about Inaritu and the, the, the interview he gave and how this was important to, to him to show the people of Mexico. But this is still Inaritu's movie. So, yeah, I, I kind of expected a passion project like this to be a little meh. Well, I tell you what, though, I think he's earned the right to make sure, his passion absolutely project. He does. Come absolutely. off of, you know, not only you know, critical and award season hits, but they they made money. I mean, the Revenant made so much money. And look, I mean, Eric Cohn interviewed him on IndieWire there, and after he won his second Oscar, he said, "quote uh, He felt queasy disconnect between his Mexican heritage and his growing Hollywood stature." And then he would later say, uh, quote, I may be too American for, for Mexicans and too Mexican for the Americans. So there's some there were these headlines to these interviews for a lot of the trades. And I, I get it. They got to sell things. But it frustrated me, Michael, because a lot of them are kind of putting him into the corner and making him sound like he's being defensive because he's like calling people. You know, he's saying there's racist undertones and he's making these statements about the identity politics of the film. And when you actually read the full interview, it's very logical and he kind of lays it out there for you. So it makes a lot more sense. So go read those. I I do think that the takeaway or at least my big takeaway was, quote, from Inaritu, I think the ones who feel displaced will understand it. And And he goes... At length, he talks about the fact that, look, you guys are not going to understand every movie. And sometimes you've got to watch it a couple of times. Hopefully that you'll, you'll eventually come to like it. And that's my biggest question about this, Michael. Because I tend to like films like this from Fellini to Charlie Kaufman. You know, the f- movies about filmmaking and the movies about storytelling. And recent examples from Bergman Island to Broken Embraces to Barton Fink. I like these B-word titles that maybe Bardo could become a part <laughs> of here. Where maybe it's a film to study at the end of the day. I sure. mean, Mank's, Mank, Mank, Mank was a fun film study for me. So I'm... Still very curious to see Bardo, and I'm sure the people who've saw, seen this are like nodding their heads. Yeah, go ahead, go in for it. But no, I, I like <laughs> movies like this, and maybe you could just throw me onto into the train on this one, Michael. Like, and I'll, I'll watch it. I, I, it goes back to too, like just because it's in a retweet doesn't mean it has to compete for Oscars, and it doesn't mean it's a failure if it doesn't. Right. Absolutely. So let's move on to let's move on to a movie that really did well, but yeah. again, you know, t- take it. Take these things with a grain of salt right now. I mean, the sure. Bardo could make a comeback. We know Netflix is going to feature it. Uh, but another studio that knows how to feature Oscar movies is Searchlight. And they seem to have a hit on their hands with the Banshees of Inna Sharon from Martin McDonough, starring Colin Farrell, who got a ton of buzz, Brendan Gleeson, Terry Condon, and Barry Keegan. Michael, we got good reviews. Did Formal write this review to appeal to me to have this set up to be my favorite movie of all time? Because the first line, this is an ode to petty grievances. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> You're a feuder, aren't you? I am there, man. If there, if you want to know something about a petty fields. grievance, I could tell you a thing or two about petty grievances. <laughs> if there were a Hatfields and a McCoys, <laughs> you would be on one side or the other, and then you would switch sides, wouldn't you? I'd be telling them both disinformation about the other side to get them to fight sooner for my enjoyment. <laughs> This is an ode to petty grievances, bizarre stands that won't be remembered, but might become a tall tale at a pub, like the sparse land of its setting. Inishirin is a film that reveals multitudes through observation and reflection, that from Brian Formo of Collider. 
uh, from Todd McCarthy of Deadline, quote, a simple and diabolical tale of a friendship's end shot through with bristling humor and sudden moments of startling violence. And Martin McDonough's latest is a more soulful and straightforwardly sad film than we've seen from him before. That from Adam Solomons of Award Watch. This has 100% on 25 reviews right now on Rotten Tomatoes, a 90 Metascore. I think the other high was a 13-minute standing ovation from uh, from Venice, right? Or did this set I don't the remember. bar? I can't remember. You had the thread. I thought yeah, this I, took this, the lead. I think at you're some right. Point. I think you're right. I think this was the only 13 minute. I might be getting my uh, my wires crossed there. But yeah, 13 minute standing ovation, which is just far too long to clap. They're all too long, aren't they? I mean, they're <laughs> we all just clap. But I, I'm glad. I'm glad for these guys. I'm glad for Colin Farrell, who seemed to sure. be the you know takeaway from many Oscar pundits. And you heard a lot of superlatives in the sense that. If he doesn't get nominated for this, he's never getting nominated. So there was a it's his time kind of narrative surrounding Colin Farrell a bit there. Obviously, and the Academy still owes him for phone booth. <laughs> obviously, he's been doing some work lately that has been inspired and that has, you know, I don't know, some of us Italians may be like, eh, but whatever. But he's done some good work. Uh, and uh, I I can appreciate the band for his risk taking, but look, a hundred percent, twenty five reviews, ninety Metascore, our second ninety Metascore yeah. of this of this episode, along with women talking. So, the Banshees of Innis Sharon. I mean, it's going to be sad, is my guess. It's going to be a bit soul crushing, is my guess. So I wonder if that maybe keeps it from all the Oscars at the end of the day. Could be, probably a probably a decent warning label to stick on it. I would say. Right, I think Mc, I, I heard warnings of that, and in, in, in but in we are also sense. not that far removed from Nomadland doing so well. So, pooped in a bucket, mm-hmm. won all the awards for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Empire of Light, Michael. She's back. <laughs> Olivia Coleman has become our finest actress working today, giving magnificent layered performances. And with Hillary, she is a top of her game. That from Ryan McQuaid of Awards Watch, our buddy there. A crowd-pleasing, at times contrived showcase for a stellar Coleman from Sherry Linden of THR. A nicely acted misfire from director Sam Mendes. That from Justin Chang of the LA Times. Uh, finally, from David Ehrlich here of IndieWire. It's wonderful that Mendes spent the pandemic making a movie about the irreplaceable vitality of movie theaters it would have been even better if he spent the pandemic making a movie worth seeing in one my man david ehrlich coming through with the not so positive review look this movie was hit or miss i think polarizing i saw more positive than i did negative about it but it was all boy olivia coleman's really good at what she does yeah, 70% on 10 reviews, but I was surprised at a lot of the naysaying. You had Sean Fennessy on the Big Picture podcast this morning just saying it's a dud, quote-unquote dud. You had yeah, Justin, Chang, Justin Chang of the LA Times calling it a, a, a misfire. So a lot of people didn't like the screenplay, the story structure. It kind of weaves in and out of certain characters' lives, I guess. Uh, obviously, it's going to be an ode to cinema's I'm a little surprised by the mixed reviews on Empire of Light. I cannot lie. I thought this was going to be a parade. I thought Ryan McQuaid was going to be the conductor when this thing first launched. <laughs> I was ready to just follow him. Uh, but no, it's, I think, like, you know, I was, I was ready to follow him into an alley like it was Animal House. That's well, what I was ready. And he was the band leader. But maybe, maybe if Olivia Coleman ate a human, they would have gotten better reviews. 
Maybe. Some of these yeah. festivals are freaking weird, bro. <laughs> uh, but like you said, Coleman definitely getting the the nod of approval for everything. Maybe it's not a composition contender. Maybe it's just a performance piece. Maybe there's a, a few below-the-line uh, areas like we talked about with uh, Mr. Deakins and the cinematography, mm-hmm. etc. And uh, maybe that's where its destiny is. Not every movie is going to get 10 Oscar noms. Obviously, we know this. So maybe this is a Olivia Coleman and, you know, a three-nom film. At the yeah, end I'm with it. I'm, I'm surprised that it was so... Uh you know, it's still positive by and large. I mean, a 70% on early, I mean, I know it's early 10, but you don't usually hear people like Justin Chang and Sean Fennessy coming out and saying Sam Mendes projects are the way they are, the way they describe this one. So yeah, I'm with you. I'm surprised, especially with the talent attached. I would have expected more, but again, I mean, maybe there was just a lack of cannibalism because bones and all was received very well. <laughs> Luca Guadagnino, Timothy Chalamet, Taylor Russell, who might be the star uh, of this uh, red carpet and certainly of the reviewers. We have Mark Rylance, Michael Stuhlbarg, and 75 Metascore, 90% on 29 reviews count and counting on Rotten Tomatoes. Stephanie Zacharek of Time Magazine. It's so carefully made and so lovely to look at, even at its grisliest, that it ends up seeming a little remote rather than a movie that draws you close. Still, its actors give you something to watch every minute. I would think a movie about cannibals, you don't want to be drawn in too close. <laughs> right. But what can't this kid do? He, he screws a peach. He eats a person. He just can do whatever he wants, and he's he, beloved, right? He single-handedly spreads a uh, herpes outbreak on the NYU <laughs> campus, allegedly. What? I didn't hear this. That's I, from that's that's from Swell. Swell, uh, Swell has been on here a couple times saying that uh, Timothy Chalamet did, uh, allegedly did not do allegedly. well on the NYU campus there. Well, allegedly... Uh, Bones and All is a fleshy, gory body horror romance that rips your heart out of your chest. That's Luke Hicks of the film stage. And allegedly, Bones and All is, quote, (laughs) a sincere swooning romance, in parentheses, with cannibalism. That's Mm. Marshall Schaefer of Slash Film. And yeah, Sean Fennessy says Timothy Chalamet eats a person. (laughs) Point blank, period. (laughs) I'm slated to see this in New York. I'm slated to eat PJ Clark's beforehand. That's a bad idea. Will I puke all over myself in my theater? You don't do like the one thing you do worst with is like body mutilation. Yeah. Ew. (laughs) I would think cannibalism or, you know, eating a human falls into that category. I don't know what to do. Like, what am I going to have to? I guess I'm going to have capitalism, to just, like, racism. Those are up to those. We leave those up to the suits in Washington to decide. All right. We're just here right. to eat this dude. <laughs> Famous line from Sonny there. <laughs> now I'm remembering. Was was the priest in that one? I don't remember. I do not Doesn't, remember. Oh, my God. Just Doesn't remember he... Frank ended up serving him squirrel meat and told him it was human meat. That's right. Yeah, no, yeah. the priest, the, the, he was. Okay. Oh, I'll my take your God. word for it. <laughs> he was. The priest got, anyway, it's towards the end of the episode, folks. Bones and all, I'm very afraid to see it. I guess we have to now. Taylor Russell, hopefully, this is the, her breakout performance. Clayton Davis was giving her the stamp of approval uh, in terms of the best actress race. Let's go. Uh, let's see some new blood. <laughs> Again, you can't <laughs> use all the sayings. 
can't use all the sayings that you want to use for some movies. But all right, so those are kind of our big features. We do want to do like a stock up, stock down, or stock divisive, I should say. Stock up, stock divisive, lightning round. And we got a few stock up documentaries, Michael. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which will be the centerpiece of the New York Film Festival about non-golden, has been deemed an Oscar contender by Eric Cohn of IndieWire there. It has an early 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. We got Good Night Oppie, a space exploration documentary from Amazon Studios, premiered at Telluride, and this was also featured in Feinberg and Keegan's article at THR. Uh, about how unanimously, unanimously beloved it was in the Rockies, and they certainly praised Goodnight Oppie themselves. Uh, but that's that's two out of three. Finally, uh, again, just a late ad- addition here, Sean Fennessy sung the praises of Senior, which we had touted a couple episodes ago about Robert Downey Sr., featuring the, you know, the life of Robert Downey Jr., uh, heavily involved in that documentary, and what a review he gave for it. Listen to that. I can't wait to see Senior uh, this coming out of Telluride, so that's exciting. A few more stock-up picks, each currently at an early 100%. My nickname in high school, Lady Chatterley's Lover (laughs) from Netflix, starring Emma Corrin and Jack O'Connell. A handsome introduction to this feminine saga of sexual awakening. It's calling your name, Mike. Laced with both something old and something new, and plenty of frank, tastefully choreographed, and actually steamy eroticism dearly missed in today's increasingly sterile mainstream cinema. Tomris! Calm down, Tomris Laffley from the rap there. (laughs) She's getting all hot and bothered, but it's nice of her to reference me in her review. I appreciate that. Uh, but let's let's touch on a few international feature possibilities. Argentina, 1985, had a good weekend. Again, this is starring Ricardo Darren. Uh, the premise for Argentina, 1985, reads, A team of lawyers take on the heads of Argentina's bloody military dictatorship uh, during the 1980s in a battle against uh, against the odds and a race against time. Carlos Aguilar of The Rap wrote, an effectively utilitarian piece of cinema that exists to preserve the historical memory of his homeland and pay tribute to some of the people who ensured that for once the arc of history did bend towards justice. I mean, sometimes you make the passion project and it's it is Oscars worthy. Sometimes it's for yourself and for your, you know, people near and dear to your heart. Yeah. Again, doesn't mean either one's better than the other necessarily. Uh Godland. Well, it could, but uh, well, you're right. But, by yeah, the Academy it, standards, it does. Sure. We'll, we'll but, decide. We'll decide ourselves. But yeah, Carlos has got to start. All right. Yeah. yeah. Screw Inaritu. He's bad. All right. <laughs> you heard it here first. Inaritu, now bad. No, we, we don't know yet. But you convinced me, Mike. <laughs> I have to make one counterpoint, a silly one at, at that. And you've got, all right, Godland. We have Godland getting good reviews coming out of the weekend. Best international feature, perhaps. Uh, in the late 19th century, a young Danish priest travels to a remote part of Iceland to build a church and photograph its people. But the deeper he goes into the unforgiving landscape, the more he strays from his purpose, the mission, and morality. Quote, Godland tells a story of natural wonder, elemental beauty, and human folly. Justin Chang, again, from those L.A. times. I feel like you can use that exact same review to describe everything that Terrence Malick has ever done, too. Yeah, so, sure. Good the, point. Yeah, thank you. I'm just going to let this awkward uh, silence linger. Stock divisive <laughs> premieres. you got to watch more international features. <laughs> I want to. I, look, they're, they're, everyone I've watched in the last, like, three years 
since that I've I've started you trying are to stretching take stretching for commentary. Look, you just at, at this point it's got to be a homework assignment. You have to watch more. <laughs> you're stretching for commentary. Stretch. Well, considering yeah. that I watched like next to zero in yeah, my thirty exactly. something That's years of life prior to the last three years. I know. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. You're doing better. Parasite didn't deserve best picture. The <laughs> Wonder, Mike. The Wonder, a bit stock divisive, even though. Sean Fennessy thinks Florence Pugh could get nominated for The Wonder more than he thinks she could get nominated for Don't Worry Darling. Fennessy said The Wonder was one of his top five films from Telluride. Uh, and look, overall, The Wonder got an early 75%. This is going to be a Netflix film, so it's doing fine. But I do remember seeing a bunch of mixed Twitter reactions early on, and a couple of high-profile critics were not sold at all, Michael. Todd McCarthy of Deadline called the plot, quote, milked for more than it's worth, while Variety's Pete DeBruge called it a preposterous adaptation of Emma Donahue's novel. So, yeah, polarizing stuff. We'll see it for ourselves once it does finally hit Netflix. We'll move on from The Wonder. We have Master Gardener, Paul Schrader's latest. Paul Schrader, of course, most recently of The Card Counter and First Reform. Master Gardener has a way too early 67% on 18 reviews, though he was the subject of, I, I guess, a very beautiful and moving slideshow or presentation or, or some like speech that Martin Scorsese gave for uh, how important Todd Schrader is to first-time filmmakers. Yeah, Paul Schrader. Todd Schrader was a quarterback, I believe. Did I screw the... that up? Did I call him Todd Schrader? You called him Todd Schrader. Right. Was a, I believe he was a quarterback, a college quarterback. Gotta leave it in now. We've made a joke UFC, about it. USC, we've made a joke. <laughs> Todd Schrader? Now, Todd I'm, I'm Schrader, innery too bad. Those are the two takeaways. <laughs> that might be the title of this episode. As for Master Gardener, we have some critics like Leila Latif of IndieWire relieved that he's more optimistic with this film. And again, this movie's getting overall Todd good reviews. 67. Todd Schrader, you're going to have to look him up. I, I apologize but to Mr. Schrader. There's also reviews like that of The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw, where I'll par- paraphrase here. It just didn't work. So that's Master Gardener. Uh, to be fair, Paul Schrader... His films kind of provoke varying opinions. I was going to say, I, I, you need someone to say this was not good or this was batshit or this was off the wall to have it really be a Paul Schrader movie, don't you? Yeah, you do. So he's just that type of filmmaker, yeah. and it doesn't want it doesn't make me want to see it any less. Right. Like I watched the Card Counter ASAP. I watched it. You know, we watch these movies as soon as possible. First Reformed was really good. I mean, it gets batshit, but crushing. it's really good. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mike, we got to close uh, to a shout out for another friend of MMO here. Yeah, we're going to close with Matt Neglia because our words of wisdom today will be check out Matt's new website at nextbestpicture.com. Yeah, and a labor of love, and Matt's been talking about it for a while. He's been giving nextbestpicture.com new digs, a whole new layout, and congratulations to them and everybody at the Next Best uh, next best picture team on the new layout and the new website i know they're working their butts off and it looks great uh you guys go go uh go check it out and for sure uh, go listen to the podcast next the next best picture podcast wow we really can't speak at the end of the episode but i mean matt and i mean tens of thousands of followers and he's been you know retweeting every episode from the beginning so he's yeah. been a mensch mensch from the from the very start an og for mmo so thank you matt and Absolutely. congratulations thank you very much uh, good job there buddy yeah here's two quick reviews from matt he stock up on after sun after sun is a touching father-daughter relationship drama told from a very personal place by breakthrough director charlotte wells Paul Mezcal and Francesca Corro's natural chemistry is so effortless and heartwarming, quiet, understated, but deeply resonant. Not what I was, res- not what I was ex- 
expecting. We really can't speak. That's what Matt had to say about After Sun. Yeah, luckily he writes well. But I, look, <laughs> I, I'm excited to see After Sun. I, I'm going to see it at New York, so I'm in for that. Matt was a bit stock divisive, though, on Close from Lucas Dunn. Close hits hard early. Uh, early on with its heartbreaking turning point at the end of Act 1, but then spins its wheels through most of its second act. A moving breakthrough performance from uh, Eden Dambreen maintained my investment, but I was expecting more. A quietly grueling film. So that could go either way. Close has gotten pretty good reviews, and Matt's... uh He's, he's mysterious in that tweet, but uh, Matt Negley at Next Best Picture, nextbestpicture.com, words of wisdom, check out the new digs. What if I just message someone named Todd Schrader and ask them to come on and we interview him and ask him questions as if he is Paul Schrader? Is that something that would play? That's something you would enjoy. <laughs> You're I'm right. Sure. Sorry, You're Todd Schrader. Right. <laughs> he has a massage parlor. I can't re- okay. really can't speak. He is a mm-hmm. Texas A&M University student. Uh, Todd Schrader was not a quarterback at USC, so I don't know what I was thinking. So the both of us are up. You were thinking of Todd, um, not McShay. Um, <laughs> I, I know who you were thinking of. Oh, God. Well, this is a perfect way to end this episode. <laughs> Todd Marinovich. Yes. I was close. Yes. That is who you were thinking of. The guy that was trained from like out the womb to be a quarterback. Yeah, yeah. It's a good. Uh, it's a good thirty for thirty on him. Good, th- a good documentary, a really good sports documentary. Yeah. Which to bring it to movie. We're lucky fans. we were able to land that in movie land. Yeah, <laughs> lucky, lucky. Yes. Oh boy, as always, we apologize for the uh, the word salad at the end of the episode here. But uh, for the first, you know, fifty something minutes, we we held. It's it together part of our life. brand. Though. Yeah, it's true. That is very true. If we didn't if we didn't have stuttering, these episodes would be about a half hour long each. But <laughs> lucky you. Uh, we want to know your thoughts. As always, was there anything from Venice or Telluride that you saw reviewed that you have now higher or lower hopes for? Or you are more divisive on. Let us know that, as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything we covered in this episode or anything we do here in the MMO Empire. As always, you can leave us those on any of our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available wherever you do hear podcasts. If you're listening to us on either the Apple Podcasts or Spotify apps, if you would be so kind, if you appreciate what we do, despite the world word mumbo jumbo, uh, if you could leave us a five-star review, those truly help us out a lot. Thank you to each and every one of you who have done so on either app thus far michael tell the good people what is coming next from us and let's have some words of wisdom to end on well i think we're gonna do barbarian that's Seems if that i'm way. not too scared mm-hmm. we're gonna do barbarian we're gonna take a break from the film festival stuff we'll do barbarian just, just a little- long peeling skin off his own body <laughs> for 90 minutes no stop it <laughs> I don't know what's in that basement. I'm encouraged that it's more thriller than horror. I'm hoping I, I, I'm I'm in trouble, aren't I? <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna those be dark basement hallways are just series of doors that you open, and it's just the Hellraiser scene over and over again. Oh, I am not watching that new Hellraiser, by wait. the way. Cannot I'm wait. Just not doing it. But look, I mean. <laughs> What's coming next from us beyond Barbarian is, of course, you know, the next Oscar race checkpoints got to react to the opening of TIFF and uh, the Venice Film Festival winners. So that'll be cool early next week. Uh, that plus D23. My God, we're going to have a lot of news to react to next week. We got the Woman King. We got Don't Worry, Darling. We still got a bunch of movies we want to check out. 
this September before we do our film festival thing in October ourselves. We've got David Long, hopefully, going to compare notes with us. Shout out to David. Appreciate your patience. Mm-hmm. Our, our friend there uh, from Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. I uh, want to talk about some Oscar betting. We were supposed to do something with him earlier. We're going to we're gonna make it happen. I mean, with David, I could say we'll make, it, we'll yeah, make that happen for, for sure. sure in October. Uh, so appreciate you, David, as well. No DC fandom uh, this year to cover. Mm. I guess WB pulled the plug on that, so... Why would they do that? Why would why would they try to cut those costs? Why would why would they not, you know, make all these announcements and do all the fanfare around their property? They also, what, what, what they also they doing? thought they had a, a, an executive hired for to lead the DC film division. And he backed off at the last second. Somebody should do an episode about yeah, all this. Not doing well. Not doing well over there under the Zasloff reign. So, uh, we'll, well see. at least don't worry, darling's gonna be a hit. <laughs> oh God. Oh, that was the that was the wrong tone of voice. I wanted "Don't Worry, Darling" to be awesome. I did. I still want to see it. I still. I, I'm gonna be there opening night. Damn it. Well, you gotta think the. The Harry Styles contingent is going to show up. Chris Pine, I want to hang out with him. Uh, Look, but you're right. The Harry Styles contingent will show up. The Florence Pugh contingent will show up. They got the fanboys and the fangirls. They're going to be there. You're right. Yeah. We'll see what, how much that uh, that can bring. That'll be a good case study. But, uh, guys, go check out Next Best Picture. Those are your words of wisdom. As always, dear listener, when reality sucks, you can come cover the film festivals with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you all very soon. See ya. See ya.